This is episode number 303 with astrophysicist and online data science instructor Sam Hinton. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today and now let's make the complex simple. This episode of the Super Data Science Podcast is brought to you by our very own Data Science Insider. The Data Science Insider is a weekly newsletter for data scientists, which is designed specifically to help you find out what have been the latest updates and what is the most important news in the space of data science, artificial intelligence, and other technologies. It is completely free and you can sign up at superdatascience.com DSI. And the way this works is that every week there's plenty of updates and seemingly important information coming out in the world of technology. But at the same time, it is virtually impossible for a single person on a weekly basis to go through all of this and find out what is actually really relevant to a career of a data scientist and what is actually very important. And that's why our team curates the top five updates of the week puts them into an email and sends it to you. So once you sign up for the Data Science Insider, every single Friday, you will receive this email in your inbox. It doesn't spam your inbox, it just arrives and has the top five updates with brief descriptions. And that's what I like the most about it, the descriptions. So you don't actually even have to read every single article. So our team has already read these articles for you and put the summaries into the email. So you can simply just read the updates in the email and be up to speed in a matter of seconds. And if you like a certain article, you can click on it and read into it further. And so whether you want great ideas that can be used to boost your next project or you're just curious about the latest news in technology, the Data Science Insider is perfect for you. So once again, you can sign up at www.superdatascience.com slash DSI. So make sure not to miss this opportunity and sign up for the Data Science Insider today. And that way you will join the rest of our community and start receiving the most important technology updates relevant to your career already this week. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super pumped to have you on the show today. And the reason is because I just got off the phone with my friend Sam Hinton, whom I can't wait for you to meet. You know those people who are into so many different things at the same time that it just seems unbelievable that that can be possible? Well, Sam is one of them, and that's why talking to him is always so fascinating. So... For example, Sam, on one hand, is an astrophysicist who's doing his PhD. He's almost finished. He's got six months to go. At the same time, he was on the Survivor reality show. You know, the one where you go on an island and you have to survive for months and uh, do all these challenges. Then again, he was recently in Linden, which is a city in Germany, I believe, where he met 15 Nobel Prize winners. And at the same time, he's into mountain biking. Then he's also launched a course on Udemy on 
Python for statistical analysis and he knows a lot about quantum mechanics and black holes and gravitational waves and all these things. So as you can imagine, our conversation today was really, really fun. So here are some of the topics that you will hear about today. We talked about meeting Nobel Prize winners, quantum mechanics, uh, appearing on the Survivor TV show, uh, the course that he launched in Python for statistical analysis. We actually went into depth on some of the topics such as hypothesis testing. Uh, we talked about academia, Python versus R, statistical significance, YP-value of 0.05 is bad, Bayesian statistics and what is the difference between frequentist and Bayesian approaches and lots and lots more. It's a really fun podcast. I can't wait for you to check it out. Apologies right away for any background noise in my audio. I hope that doesn't affect your experience. And without further ado, I bring to you astrophysicist and online data science instructor, Sam Hinton. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you on the show because I have my good friend here with me, Sam Hinton, calling in from Brisbane. Sam, how are you going? I'm going good, mate. How are you? Amazing. Amazing. Thank you. And man, it's been a long time. When was the last time we caught up? Uh, in person, what, last year, the year before? I don't, you just keep traveling. It's so hard to get a hold of you. Man, you're the same. You're like all over the place. It's like... Oh, yeah. Hey, I've, I've been back in town for a week, okay? <laughs> all right. Well, you, you're, you're ahead of me on that one for now. Um, where were you? You were like, what, in Canberra, in the United States, like all over the world. Where, where was your last trip to? Uh, let's see, the last trip was to the Space Telescope Science Institute, which is in Baltimore in the States. Uh, I then went to the University of Philadelphia to work with a colleague there. Before that, I was in Berlin. Um, before that, in Lindau. Before that, in Grindelwald in Switzerland. And before that, I had a conference in South Africa. Uh, so it's been a busy year. <laughs> yeah, man. Like... Um... And the difference is your travel is all mostly related to science. Correct me if I'm wrong on that one. Uh, yeah, out of those trips, I did a week in Switzerland, and that was my personal travel, which was absolutely amazing. We mountain biked to the top of a few mountains. Mm -hmm. Best thing ever. Uh, but everything else has been conferences, collaboration meetings, or just working with uh, external colleagues. Lots of, lots of travel in astrophysics. <laughs> and the what's been the most exciting one of those? Uh, probably Lindau. So this is the Lindau Nobel Laureates meeting. So every year there's a, a different set of themes and they gather as many Nobel Prize winners as they can together. So the theme for this year was, you know, cosmology, dark energy, dark matter, particle physics. And obviously that's one of my areas of research. So I got to be one of Australia's reps over there. And uh, that was a week of uh, banging heads with Nobel Prize winners. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was fun. I definitely need to do better science uh, if I ever won a Nobel Prize. Those guys are absolutely insane. Uh, but definitely, uh, definitely a highlight for me. So who did you meet from the Nobel Prize winners? Uh, a few people. So obviously there's the supernova team. So the 2011 Nobel Prize in Physics, uh, dark energy with type 1A supernova. So Brian Schmidt 
and Adam Reese were there. Um, I've met Brian before a few times. He's actually the vice chancellor down at ANU in Australia. And, uh, you know, I've done work with him. Uh, Adam hadn't met before. There's uh, David Gross, uh, so particle physics. Uh, actually, a whole bunch of people. But the winner here, the win- the real winner was Brian Schmidt because that dude got to give a public lecture in a Zeppelin. Uh, like, where else in your <laughs> life do people say, hey, you want to give a talk? By the way, you'll be in a Zeppelin above Lindau. That's crazy. Uh, a Zeppelin. Like, come on. I, I didn't get a slot in there. It was first come, first served. And the amazing Australian internet meant by the time I logged into the system, yeah. everything was gone. Oh, no. So, uh, so, I just stared bitterly at the Zeppelin as we saw it floating around in the sky. The Zeppelin is like, a, is like a big uh, one of those elongated hot air balloons with the well not hot air balloons uh, but the thing that flies around like does commercials right yeah yeah like 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 a blimp yeah so. blimp. there we go yeah yeah that's insane why did they do it in a zeppelin uh because it's cool <laughs> uh yeah like his lecture was probably on his area of expertise which is astrophysics not much to do with the zeppelin they actually use the zeppelin for doing measurements of the water in the coastline below because mm-hmm. uh, it allows you to stay in the air for a long time actually quite cheaply uh but that obviously has nothing to do with astrophysics so it was probably just an amazing experience that any reasonable person would jump at mm-hmm. Um, and maybe I'll get to do it one year. I just need to win a Nobel Prize first. <laughs> well, that's not far off uh, with your with your rate of progress. What, what's your? Um, you're doing a PhD right now. What's that? What's that in? Uh, so the PhD, I've actually got a few topics, but I'm near the end of it. So I really need to start writing a thesis properly. But instead, I keep trying to get my papers out. Uh, so I'm looking at things like the large scale structure of the universe. Uh, that is like the, uh, I guess, imprints from the primordial universe and how they've evolved into galaxy clusters and the cosmic filament and type 1a supernova. So how you can use exploding stars as standard candles to try and characterize the expansion history of the universe because if you can do that you can try and determine the nature of dark energy dark energy being essentially in in my mind one of the biggest unsolved questions in modern physics Mm. what what is dark energy in in a nutshell in in a few sentences (laughs) In, in a few sentences okay okay so the universe is expanding Mm-hmm. That expansion is accelerating, and the reason we think it is accelerating is what we call dark energy. So it's a phenomenological uh, description here because we don't really know what it is. The simplest explanation, this is the one put forward by Einstein before dark energy was a thing. He put forward this explanation not for dark energy, for something else, but it actually just fits dark energy. Mm-hmm. Was that what if space-time itself had energy. So you take everything out of space-time, you have a hard vacuum, but it still has energy. Mm-hmm. And if you give it that energy, it can act essentially, and it has like the right density and the right pressure, because energy has both density and pressure, um, that's a GR thing, then you can get this sort of expansion force, this force that pushes everything away, which is, I guess, the wrong way of phrasing it, a force which makes space itself expand. And uh, yeah, that you, that is currently our best explanation of dark energy. The main, the main issue we have is that if you try and use quantum mechanics to quantify how much energy there is in space, so you can do that in quantum mechanics, uh, you get the wrong answer. 
Uh, it's called the vacuum catastrophe. So it's not just a little bit wrong. It's really wrong. It is, in fact, the worst prediction of all time <laughs> in theoretical physics. Uh, the best estimates still have you around 80 orders of magnitude wrong. Wow. Which which is more wrong than estimating you know, the size of the entire universe as less than the radius of a proton. It's it's incredibly wrong. And so we really need to fix that. And when I say we, I mean people that are not me. Uh, I am not a theoretician. I am an observationalist. I will check people's models, uh, but I really don't have the expertise to play around and actually create, like delve into the nitty gritty of quantum mechanics, NGR. I did quantum. I did up to like relativistic quantum mechanics in my studies. And then I was like, this stuff is nasty. Let's do some more space things. Yeah. Yeah. I can totally relate to that. Uh, I had quantum mechanics in my uh, fourth year or third and fourth year at uni in my bachelor of physics. That stuff is so crazy. Like, there are some people who understand it on an intuitive level, like not me. I, I just understand. Yeah. <laughs> I understood the formulas. I'm like, I can write this thing out. I can, I can do your equations. But hey, like, it's so, it's so confusing. What is going on? All right. Like the, what's it called? The Heisenberg un, unpredictability. Uncertainty, Uncertainty principle. principle? Yeah. Okay. All right. Like, I can get that. Uh, but the rest of it, it's, it's just so so out of far-fetched from this world so different like even even probabilities are different in quantum mechanics crazy yeah and it's there's a huge like when you get into qm you you can tell there's this huge skill gap between what's uh, qm is quantum mechanics quantum mechanics yes general relativity general relativity yeah okay uh but yeah there's this huge gap between the people that know the background and know the math and can solve the equations Mm -hmm. and and those that intuitively understand them exactly so i was one of the people that could i could churn through the math that was fine i could get the answers out at the end but it would take me six pages of math to get there (laughs) whilst this other person would simply look at it draw like a small Feynman diagram in like a centimeter squared and say yeah the answer is probably about this yeah and i was like well it, it is um but how the hell did you do that? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, man. Um, you know, and what I love about you is that you are so like, you get into into the craziest things. Like, how the hell, tell me, how on earth did you get into Survivor? That was like craziest <laughs> thing. Like when our common t- friend told us about this, uh, told me about this, and I, I, I watched that. There's a... Uh, YouTube clip of uh, Sam oh, of you. So bad. <laughs> it's so funny, man. I'm sorry. It's yeah. just hilarious. How did you get? So no, you were, one that got. You were yeah. an Australian survivor, right? Uh, yes. Uh, last year, so in 2018, there was the Australian Survivor Champions versus Contenders, and somehow uh, I was approached to be one of Australia's academic champions on the show. Mm. I have absolutely no idea how they stumbled across me i didn't apply for the show i i thought like you know i didn't even know that they were casting the show let alone it wouldn't have occurred to me but i was at that point in my phd where i was starting to get a bit burnt out you know i was up early in the morning and because i work with a lot of people in the states it meant that i would sort of finish work around 2 a.m because Mm -hmm. that's sort of when you know they're working hard in the states because the time zones are awful 
And it was just day after day after day. And I was just like getting stretched real thin. And then suddenly out of the blue, I get an email. I initially delete that email. It sounds a lot like spam, right? <laughs> Hi, Sam. I stumbled onto you. Like we get a lot of these sort of emails, uh, especially from predatory journals. So I just, I saw they're like, you know, it's got my name right. Do you want to apply? And I was like, delete. <laughs> and, then, and then like the next week, I was like, hang on. I like the name was familiar. It was the company name, Endemol Shine. And I realize now it's because obviously I've seen them plastered because they make, uh, you know, The Bachelor, Survivor, My Kitchen Rules, Mars, you know, almost every single reality TV show you've seen. And it, so eventually I went through and I undeleted the email, responded, had a Skype call. They flew me down to Sydney. I had a chat with the executive producer. They went to the board at Channel 10, got me all approved. And then I went to my supervisor and was like, hey, um, <laughs> can I take a three-month break? I really need a break. And so I was like, well, where are you going? I was like, PG? <laughs> what? <laughs> um, but yeah, I needed the break. And it was such a break, right? There's no technology out there, no internet, no phones. You sleep in the dirt. The show's completely real. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no like hand-holding behind the scenes. Uh, and yeah, it was probably one of the best experiences of my life because it was so far out of my comfort zone, but I had a blast. I think I did not too badly. <laughs> I didn't win, mm -hmm. but I wasn't first voted out, you know? So that's something. <laughs> that's right. That's right, man. Uh, was it, was it hard? Like, uh, doing all the social stuff? Cause you, you know, you're, uh, you're most of the time you're in a lab, you're working with numbers and so on. And here it is like, as you say, no computers, no technology. You have to like socialize, you have to lead people, you have to be in a tribe and all these things. How how different was that? Uh, that was like, it was both easy and extremely difficult. So I tell a lot of bad jokes naturally. <laughs> um, you know, I don't, I don't worry or stress about too much. I just say what's on my mind and hope that it's not too stupid. And it seems like that was, that was a good thing to do out there because you can tell a lot of the, the fans of the show, they go in like, I'm going to be the biggest schema, the most evil person of all time. And so they overdo it and it, they don't, you don't feel authentic like they're, they're putting on a character mm -hmm. and it makes it makes them hard to relate to and so people don't like them and they get voted out and they're like where did i go wrong and i was like really <laughs> uh, and i i didn't i just went out there to essentially get away from the phd relax have some fun and so i got on well with everyone it was a bit hard to uh, relate sometimes mm -hmm. i was the only academic out there mm -hmm. i was the only unmarried person out there i was the youngest champion so a lot of the time the discussion you know revolves around uh you know kids or housing or this and i was like yeah yeah i i go to uni um <laughs> cool uh but that that was fine uh the part i enjoyed the most was actually the challenges you know it's not like i get the mental challenge uh, a lot in my work it's sort of why I do what I do. Uh, but the physical challenges were something that I was actually really happy with myself with. You know, I, I was the only person out there to win every single one-on-one -on -one challenge, physical, endurance, everything. I smashed it. But, um, you know, I didn't make it far enough in the show, so they didn't show most of my challenges. They edit oh. them out. Um, oh, interesting. But, uh, you know, I, I know I did all right. So, I'm going to hold on to that. <laughs> okay. All right. Gotcha. Wow. Well, what a crazy experience. Um, and speaking now of like diversity of things, you know, like we talked about your PhD and travel and now Survivor. I wanted to say huge congratulations on the launch of your Python for Statistical Analysis course on uh, Udemy and on SDS. That's, that's really exciting. Congrats, man. 
Yeah, thanks, mate. Uh, that was, uh, I think, one of the biggest uh, projects I've done so far. It ended up taking like six, seven months to develop that. Wow. Uh, but I've been wanting to do it for years because I constantly tutor at uni and encounter the same deficiencies, the same lack of like practical experience. And it's like, you know, I've pitched it to my university. Why don't you run a course on this? Like, do that. Make this compulsory. And the answers always are, there's no time. It's established. This is the way it's always been done. And it's mm. like, okay, well, I guess I'll make my own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it seems to be going fairly well. Um, Incredibly obviously, well. It's uh, like yeah. it's got over, which launched like a, what, uh, a few months ago, like two months ago. It's already got a, over 1,100 students, 67 ratings. You, you're like the highest rated course on on statistics or on, on the statistical analysis with 4.8 stars. Like this is incredible, man. Like, and for your first course, especially, you know what I'll tell you? Like, first of all, designed amazingly. Like, all the pictures, images are incredible inside. And then your style, you have like a natural style. Like, I watched, just when I was checking out the course, I watched a couple of tutorials and just to see what's going on. And like, I end up every time, like, I end up just watching a whole section. I just can't stop. You know, it's like, it's like, wow, what's he going to say next? You make jokes, you make, you know, like, you leave, leave these cliffhangers. It's so fun to watch. It's like, I wasn't intending on watching a lot of videos. Uh, at the time, I was just like, I want to check out a few. I end up like watching half an hour or 40 minutes, which is like nonsense. <laughs> Stop it. You're making me blush. <laughs> uh, but no, that, that was something that uh, I know always helped me relate to students. When I was giving uh, lectures or doing tutorials, was no one wants to sit and listen to just someone reciting slides. So mm-hmm. I always keep it very conversational, very casual. Uh, you know, if I screw up or make a mistake, I just I keep that in there. You know, it's all right to make mistakes. Um, if I have a joke, no matter how bad it is, I'll say it. I just assume that at least one person will laugh or at least breathe out just a little bit more than they normally would, and and I'm happy with that mm-hmm. yeah no that's a fair fair way well let's talk, let's talk about a, a bit about that so like i i launched my course on statistics i think two or maybe three years ago now or two and a half and i ha- honestly i haven't been like looking into it actively so i'd love to brush up on some of this stuff what's what are some of the areas you cover off in the course what's what's important uh from the perspective of a data scientist in the space of statistics. Right. I guess the the thing that I've noticed lacking the most in the students I tutor, so again, this will have a slight astrophysics spin on it uh, because that's most of the people I interact with, uh, is just being able to know what question to ask and how to answer it. A lot of the time, the mathematical skills are there. People know algebra, they know basic probability theory, but being able to say like, this is the question and that implies that this is the hypothesis and this is how we'll test that hypothesis, that's where the skill gap is. So I think the largest chapter I have is all about hypothesis testing. uh, And I make sure that we have a whole bunch of practical examples at the end of the course too, just to try and tie everything together. So that's a big focus. And then another thing that I've noticed was really lacking um, is just the, the visual element of it. So I know when I read a textbook, if there's a a page of math or a page of like, this is defined as blah, and then just like eight equations after each other, it takes me so long to go through that page. I get confused so easily. I have to keep all these definitions in my mind. So I thought, let's try and focus a lot on the graphical exploration of data, uh, not just 
so that we understand the relationships in the data, but so that when people are making plots or figures or papers or presentations, they actually convey like a lot of information very succinctly. Because for me, if I had to choose between reading an equation and looking at a plot, I will always, always choose the plot. Yeah. So there's a big focus um, on that as well. Obviously, there's a whole bunch of refreshes on probability, Python itself, uh, you know, a whole bunch of different chapters, uh, extra examples, all of the good stuff to try and like hammer everything home. But those are the two, the two main things, hypothesis testing and the, the visual sort of workflow. Okay. Um, interesting. So let's dive into this a bit more. So in terms of visual element, uh, what, what do you use to code the visuals? Uh, so all the plots that I use that are in the course are all done with matplotlib, which is a Python package. We do briefly, uh, I sort of do briefly go into how you can use other packages to get things like interactive plots or plots that you can embed in web pages if you want something a bit fancier. But matplotlib has essentially become the standard way of plotting in the Python world. And other graphing libraries, uh, things like Seaborn, are often built on top of matplotlib. So getting that base skill down allows you to do pretty much anything else in Python. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Gotcha. And we ch- chatted about this a bit, but a bit about this before the podcast. And I, I promised to ask this question. Uh, Python versus R. You mentioned that a lot of <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the some of the astrophysics community actually uses R uh, for analysis. Why why do you uh, choose Python? Yeah, uh, it's simple uh, because. Back when I was starting my research, this was a big discussion, R versus Python. People were moving away from Fortran and IDL. Uh, I don't expect anyone to have heard of IDL. It's a very proprietary astrophysics thing, uh, but it was very expensive and awful. And so it was a big discussion, but long story short, Python won years ago. So whilst there are still people that do R, and I know of some courses that are taught in R, uh, Python is taking over. So all my students, I recommend going into that. And I'm happy to discuss why it's so much better to do Python than R if you want. Yes, please tell us. Like, it's this has been a, a big debate. Like, two years ago, people listening to this podcast will know two years ago, I would ask all, almost every single guest on the podcast, and I would call it the golden question Python versus R, which, which one to pick. But lately, it's become more and more transparent and obvious which way to go. And I just want to get your opinion on this. Yeah. So the issue, like a few years ago, there was a debate because R had a bunch of great things like vectorized calculations that just made doing scientific analysis very natural and easy. And Python didn't quite have those. But the issue is R still has them, but now Python has all these fantastic libraries like NumPy, SciPy, Pandas that vectorize everything, but do so much more than you can get out of R. So if you're, for example, wanting to go outside of academia, this is a big thing for us, right? Only 5% of PhD students will get a full-time academic position. There just aren't many jobs. So most of us will go into data science or software, some industry area, and If you want to, let's say, create a web app using Flask or Django, well, Python's got you covered. R, not so much. If you want to do a hundred other things, Python is popular in essentially every area of coding. Mm -hmm. R is popular in sort of data analysis. 
So if you want to get utility more than data analysis and sort of scientific investigation, it's an absolute no-brainer. And, and you brought this up too. If you want to do machine learning or deep learning, you want to start off with simple machine learning, well, you have scikit-learn in Python. You want to do something a bit better but still fairly high level but start deep learning, well, you load up Keras. You want to get into the nitty-gritty, well, you've got PyTorch and TensorFlow. And it's like it's just it's hard for R to compete when all of these amazing packages are available for Python with minimal installation effort. Yeah, no, I I, I agree. R R is R is um, conceptually different with uh, you know the whole like as you said vectorized the way it was designed. But if I was starting out into data science now, if I was a beginner or if I was looking to even progress my skills rapidly in one of the two languages, I would no doubt pick python like i it just all the all the benefits that you mentioned it's got and with backing from both google and facebook i think it's become an absolute no-brainer yeah yeah all right (laughs) (laughs) i was like i can say more but at that point it's just ranting (laughs) yeah uh it sounded a bit sad well you know let's hope that our guys come up with some some cool stuff as well to make you know unique applications for R. and then we'll watch as the python guys just recode what done and it's more popular (laughs) (laughs) it will happen you're leaving it no chances uh all right all right so the next thing i want to talk about is um this really cool thing you mentioned what questions to ask indeed that's a that's a common issue of data scientists that uh, we don't ask the right questions we dive into solving a problem it turns out to be the wrong problem or the wrong variation of the problem or it's too long could have been much shorter and things like that so and then you said hypothesis testing that's like putting a kind of like a scientific terminology or wrapper around asking a problem tell us a bit about hypothesis testing like i think that mindset that approach to not just i'm going to ask the right question and go solve it but i'm going to ask the right question come up with a hypothesis have a null hypothesis has a have an alternative hypothesis understand which one to solve it's really powerful for data scientists because it makes you it forces you to keep statistical significance in mind Whereas when you're just asking the question, you don't even think, you know, like, unless you are used to it, you won't think about statistical significance. So tell us a bit about that. Like, what is hypothesis testing? What's the procedure for coming up with a hypothesis? What's a null hypothesis? What's an alternative? Okay, let's see. Uh, This is a fairly broad topic. (laughs) And obviously, when you're talking about hypothesis testing, it's extremely contextual. Like what sort of hypothesis is entirely dependent on the question, your data sets and what tools you have available. One, uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out like where to start with this large topic. But I guess an issue people often have is coming up with a good hypothesis. So something that's quantifiable and something that has a very well-defined pathway forward. So often you can ask a question and then you say, okay, okay, now what? Like, what do I do with this question? And something that has always helped me is to keep in mind, what if I'm wrong? So it's very easy just to say, what if this is the case? But if you can always say, What if this is the case and what if it's not? It really helps you quantify what's the difference between the two models. And obviously, in this case, one of those 
uh, two questions is going to be your null hypothesis. Normally, what if I'm wrong? What if the hypothesis isn't true and the de facto default is at case? And so once you try and say, what if I'm wrong, it, it forces you to highlight the difference between the predictions for you know the null case and whatever new physics or new relationship or new idea that you're trying to see if it you know works with the data. So, yeah, it's it's difficult. Where where to go from there? Let's, because let's go with an example. Let's like uh, I don't know. Let's take a maybe data science slash astrophysics example. Something off the top of your mind. Something not too complex. No quantum mechanics or no GR. Um, where you can give an example. All right, here's here's a hypothesis. Here's the situation. How do we ask the question? Uh, and this is the null hypothesis we would come up with. And this is the alternative. This is our. This is what we want to prove. And this is in the case we're wrong. I think that would be best from here. Do you have an example? Uh, I have a, have a few from my work. Uh, it's simplifying them so that we can talk about it without flashing plots on screen. Mm -hmm. If we, uh, how about a a simple non-astrophysics example that is topical, uh, given you know uh, many countries are having elections coming up, is uh, the hypothesis that an election has been rigged. Yeah, or that there's election interference. And you have one in the in the course about this, right? Uh, yeah, I think we have. Uh, I go over it. I think there's an extra little problem, like a, a practical example that I run through uh, in the section where we deal with proportion testing, mm -hmm. uh, which wasn't something I was going to get into in here because uh, it involves actually putting down a bit of math, which no one wants read out to them. I guarantee. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so let's say you have potentially fishy election results. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people say, okay, well, how do we like? what would define fishiness? You know, how do we know something's wrong? And so that, that forces you to say, what if I'm wrong? Well, what if there is no election interference? And then you have to quantify, okay, so if there is no election interference, what would we expect to see? If there is election interference, what would we now see depending on how much interference there is? Obviously, any model you have will generally have a free parameter. Um, whether or not you actually parameterize that parameter is up to you. Um, I know a lot of people, so let me quantify that a little bit. Uh, if you have election interference, you could say, what if there has been a, you know, one in 20 votes were changed inappropriately, like a 5% uh, sort of uh, fraudulent fudge factor. Or you could try and say, let's try and like not fix that to 5% and just see what does the data indicate uh, in terms of, you know, how fraudulent do the results appear. And once you try and put in parameters, you can write out probabilities that say, okay, I would expect to see this many votes out of this many people, uh, given that I have surveyed and sampled uh, this many people from the phone. So you, and yeah, it's, it's the whole process of essentially once you have the null hypothesis and your hypothesis, you need to be able to write down the math, the probability mm. distributions that describe that. And once you have the probability distributions that describe what you would expect to see, given your model, so that is given no uh, fraudulent election interference or given X amount, how would you expect the votes to be distributed? Once you have all of that, you then have to figure out, okay, what do I do with these probability density functions, these PDFs? And that's something we cover in the course, things like one-tailed or two-tailed tests, uh, how you can take your probability cutoffs and you integrate them out to actually get the chance that there was some election interference 
at some level of significance because obviously this is a big thing that's often done wrong is the significance of your results and often that gets a bit overhyped so that that was a bit of a weird explanation (laughs) Um, forgive me no no oh good i'm i was listening along let's um let's see let's see how well i understood that let's try let me try another one let's say um let's say an asteroid speaking your language let's say an asteroid is flying towards earth right and uh my my thing that i want to kind of prove let's say that it's it's a dangerous asteroid that it will hurt hit earth that is a uh it's flying towards the planet that would be my alternative hypothesis. That would be my H1. My null hypothesis in this case is that it's an asteroid like any other asteroid that's going to fly by. It's never going to affect Earth. Um, and so in that case, I would need to um, describe what is what, what I expect to see in the null hypothesis, right? So that, you know, its trajectory um, would not collide like would not cross earth's path when earth is going to be in that specific place on the other hand in the h1 i would need to explain describe again what i expect to see and i would expect to see um with a high chance of certainty that its trajectory would intercept earth's trajectory is that is that about right yeah that's sort of how you deal with it in a traditional hypothesis testing approach the the fun fact that I'll let everyone in on is that a lot of the time we don't do the traditional hypothesis testing. So especially, well, I can really only speak to astrophysics. It's quite rare that you actually see someone state, this is the null hypothesis and this is our, you know, our non-null hypothesis, our primary, our test hypothesis. Mm -hmm. What we normally end up doing is actually parameterizing both hypotheses so that they're the same thing. Uh, So this might be, let's say, uh, we're trying to detect a signal. Well, you would have in your model parameter a parameter that describes the signal strength. Mm -hmm. In the asteroid, when you're modeling its trajectory, you would have, uh, you know, the parameter that might determine its initial position and velocity. Well, those are six parameters because they're both three vectors. And then you would forward model from that point and figure out what region of parameter space results in, you know, disastrous impact with the planet. And it's from those parameters that we would get our confidence intervals. So in the traditional way, you would have your hypothesis and your null hypothesis. And then you would check to see whether your hypothesis uh, is favored using your data and to what significance it is favored. And, you know, if you generally the way that you talk about it um, is that if you get more than some significance level. So the traditional one is a p-value of 0.05, which I recommend never to use. um, (laughs) You would say that, okay, we reject the null hypothesis hypothesis. In astrophysics, we wouldn't actually use that phrasing. We would say, you know, let's go to the, let's stay on the asteroid example, I guess. We would say that given the initial conditions and, you know, our prior uncertainty on those, the asteroid has, you know, this chance of hitting the earth. We would just quote the number, Mm -hmm. the probability of impact, rather than actually phrasing it as, you know, we have rejected the null hypothesis that it misses earth. We would just ah, say this okay. is the number. Make like of that what you will. Okay. So instead of using that ninety-five percent as a like a threshold, you say 
it's uh, the chance of hitting earth is like 0.1%, which is less than 95, so, uh, or which is less than 5%, so we would probably reject the null hypothesis, but just for information, here's it's 0.1. Yeah, so we would use that number. We wouldn't even... We wouldn't even write about the null hypothesis. Mm. Uh, the only time that you would generally see that in sort of astro or particle physics are on things like press releases. Mm-hmm. So if you remember a few years ago, they discovered the Higgs boson, mm-hmm. uh, which was a very disappointing day for all of us. Um, because, you know, if you discover something that was predicted 40 years ago, it means that the physics is right, right? Yeah. You know, it's a validated prediction. It's always more fun when the physics is wrong, because that means there's a new undiscovered physics to go out and find. Yeah. So that's that's like a lot of us would have preferred if the Higgs boson wasn't there because then we're like, yes, the standard model can eat the dust. We're going to find the new standard model. Turns out we can't. Mm. Anyway, back on track. Uh, with that announcement, they saved up. So they they obviously had data for years, but they didn't publish a discovery until it hit their required level of confidence, which for particle physics is generally five sigma. Mm. So the sort of um, you know p-value of 0.05 is roughly, assuming a single dimension, uh, you know two sigma. Mm-hmm. Three sigma is around 99%. Five sigma is you're wrong one in a million times, not the one in 20 times that a p-value of 0.05 is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so obviously the p-value used changes with the fields, but it's it's often just used for things like things like that, like press releases, because you can always publish a paper uh, that says you know our discovery, like we are you know, 8% confident or 3% or 1%, uh, there's less of a focus in astrophysics on drawing that line at some given p-value and say either we have or we haven't discovered it. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, we prefer something with a bit more flexibility. Gotcha. Okay. And let's, uh, let's uh, from there, let's segue a little bit to statistical significance. You mentioned... Uh, never to use the p-value of 0.05, which I'd love to hear more about. And in general, how important is statistical significance in data science? Like, I understand it's important in academia and so on, but like, I'm I'm a data scientist, I'm doing a business application, I'm doing a model, I'm doing providing some insights to uh, my supervisor, and why should I care about statistical significance? <laughs> Ah, so many, so many potential answers for that one. The very short answer is why you should care about significance is because it, it helps you be right. Mm. Uh, You know, you can have a nice manager that gives you a lot of freedom, uh, a lot of discretionary funding and lets you just pursue whatever you want. Uh, But you have to know what it is you should be pursuing, which means you should be informing your research based upon the the statistical significance of what you've found so far. You know, no one wants to chase down the rabbit hole for two years of finding that really, you know, wasn't that significant to begin with and turns out to be nothing but a statistical anomaly in the end. Mm. On a different topic, the, the way, well... Why I would say never to trust a p-value of 0.05 is because it's so high. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's one in 20 times you're wrong. Now, (laughs) a lot of the time, if you read a paper, you think, okay, well, let's, let's just say that one in 20 papers that present their results, assuming everything has an exact p-value of 0.05, right, um, is wrong. But the issue is that a paper generally doesn't present one claim. So in the process of doing your research, you often test 
a whole bunch of claims or you have multiple models and you're testing different models on the data seeing what works what doesn't work because obviously uh, the real world is messy and it's rare that we can actually account for every source of uncertainty every nuisance parameter everything we should marginalize over with perfect accuracy and because of that, we often try, okay, what if we add this this parameter to account for this effect? Or what if the the account for that effect has a different functional form? Whether it's just like, what if we subtract a, a quadratic or a cubic or, you know, a sinusoid, you know? It's very easy to just pitch a hundred different ideas and test them all very quickly. And if you restrict yourself to something like a p-value of 0.05, you're always going to come back with at least some model that says, ah, okay, this one's significant. This one must be the one that works. Mm -hmm. And so it's just so easy to mislead yourself if that's your threshold. So feel free, well, I, I, I don't even want you to feel free to publish a p-value of 0.05. Um, I think it should be much less, uh, but just keep that in mind. And it's something that I say a whole bunch of times in the course, which is, Think in probabilities, not in like true or false, mm -hmm. like it's significant or it's not, because mm -hmm. uh, that will stop you being misled and wasting your time far more often than just, ah, yes, p-value less than 0.05 and it's 0.049 and you've tested 20 <laughs> hypotheses. Um, XKCD has a, a nice infographic on this where they have um, a little comic where some scientists have gone out and they're testing different colored jelly beans to see whether they cause cancer or, <laughs> or some scenario like that. And it's like, yeah, so the red ones, nope, there's uh, no significance there. Green ones, nope, yellow, no, brown, no, black, white. They go through all of them and then suddenly it's like, ah, purple, yes, there's a p-value of less than 0.05. Purple jelly beans cause cancer. And obviously, it's just because they've tested so many colors. But but that sort of thing happens absolutely all the time in science. And the scientists don't care too much because we know that it happens. So when someone says a p-value of 0.04, we keep that in mind. We don't we don't attribute huge significance to it, right? But once once it goes out to the lay people, once the media gets a hold of it, you get all those sensationalized rubbish titles and headlines that you probably see all the time. And that contributes a lot to, I guess, people's mistrust or distrust of scientific results because they constantly hear that ah, this thing here cures cancer. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, yeah, it had a 5% chance in a mouse trial. It's like, it's, it's not something you should be getting excited about but the news release doesn't really cover that. Mm. So there's there's lots of reasons, whether it's just for your personal career to stop you wasting time or whether it's to try and communicate accurate science. Uh, I just really detest, uh, you know, the, the sort of loose science that comes from a p-value of 0.05. Like, I'm not happy if one in 20 papers is wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's no. that's too much. And the fact that we're testing so many different hypotheses and with so many, you know, so many different models in a single paper means that that number is much higher. There was one study that I saw that tried to reproduce, I think, several dozen psychology papers, Thanks. and it could only reproduce like 40 percent of them. So I remember reading about one analysis that tried to go through prior literature and just reproduce the results. And they went through dozens of claims and they could reproduce less than half of them. Mm -hmm. so, and that's what happens when you have 
you know, such a low threshold for significance, but also when you have the, I guess, the attitude in the publishing community, less the scientific community, that people only want to publish positive results. And this this happens, like this happens to me, this happens to everyone. You reproduce a result, you can't, you know, get the same thing. Well, that's not really publishable by itself. You don't know whether you've made a mistake, whether they've made a mistake, whether you don't have the data. And even if you were confident in all of that, no one wants to read a study. Uh, is, well, scientists don't, but the general public doesn't even more, want to read a study that just says, we couldn't reproduce this. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not new. It's not interesting or novel. So it's a lot harder to get published, and it's even harder to get funding for. I have never heard of anyone getting funding to just go back and try and double check a whole bunch of results. Only if you're improving in some way or doing something different, does anyone decide to give you money? Mm. And I I can half see why, right? We prefer new and interesting novel discoveries, but sometimes, you know, you just have to suck it up, do the nitty gritty and make sure that what's been put out there already is actually accurate. Mm -hmm. It almost feels like this should be a system where Whenever a paper gets published, there is equivalent funding set out for somebody else independently to reproduce that same result just to make sure that what is being published is not uh, erroneous. Yeah, that would be absolutely fantastic. And if you can get that set up, that would be great. <laughs> yeah, let, <laughs> I, let, I let perhaps get... don't have the political clout to do so. <laughs> let me get that pot but, of gold that's under yeah, my Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Uh, it's, I, it's something that we're actually trying to, like, we're very good with this actually in astrophysics. And it's one of the areas that I, I like most about this community. So when we did an analysis of gravitational weak lensing in the dark energy survey, mm. we did multiple models and they were blinded so that we didn't know the end results. So we developed two independent models, run them both over the data set in exactly the same way, get the blind answers out at the end. So we've like added fudge factors and scaled our results so we don't know what the true value is. And then at like a live teleconference in front of everyone, you unblind both of the methods. Mm -hmm. And ideally, they should agree within their uncertainty to some value that is physically reasonable. And that's happened so far for us, Mm -hmm. uh, which is good. Um, But yeah, like that sort of like having multiple methods that are consistent with each other is something that is a lot easier for us to do in astrophysics because we have data products that exist and is harder for people to do, let's say in psychology, where, you know, you don't particularly have the issues not with the model, the issues with your confounding factors and your survey sizes. So it's not like you can just have slightly different physics that go in. You don't deal with physics. You just deal with human randomness, which is unfortunately impossible to model. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you. I was actually reading, um, I read an article maybe like a year or actually two years ago on, I think it was on science or in the nature magazine online, which was talking about exactly that, that P values are like causing a lot of uh, problematic research to be published or research that's misleading to be published. And they also tried this reproducibility of results and found similar conclusions. And um, yeah, like one example of saying that you can actually use P values uh, and to, if you collect enough data, you can prove that frogs can predict earthquakes, like random things like that. And this leads me to some 
another topic I want to talk to you about, which I think you're quite fond of, and that is Bayesian statistics. What is the difference between frequency statistics, that's where we use the p-values, and that was developed by Fisher in the early 20th century, versus, and which is like taught in schools, which is the norm in scientific community. What is the difference between that type of statistics and Bayesian uh, statistics? Okay, um, there are a few, and often uh, the, the differences that you care about are contextual. So if you're implementing a model, if you have some model that you're coding up, the difference between, let's say, a frequentist and a Bayesian approach are simply the priors. Uh, so in a Bayesian framework, you take your prior information that you have on, let's say, the physical distribution of your model parameters into account. Um, Another way of thinking about it on a more conceptual level is that, I guess, Bayesian statistics, uh, your model parameter, so let's say you're fitting a line, your model parameter might be your gradient and your y-intercept, mm -hmm. right? Um, your model parameters are unknown, mm -hmm. in, and, you, and your data is what's fixed. And that's how you sort of conduct your analysis. In the frequentist way, the, the data is what's unknown, but the model parameters are fixed. And so you're sort of asking the reverse question. Uh, what's the probability of getting your data given your model parameters, or what's the probability of your model parameters given your data? And obviously the difference between those Sorry, is you how you- Sorry, <laughs> I think, I think I, that blew over my head. Could you repeat that again, please? Right. Okay. So one of the key differences is just the order in which you look at things Okay. in that uh, for, so you might have the probability mm -hmm. of your model parameters given your data, and that's sort of a Bayesian approach, mm -hmm. or the probability of your data given your model parameters. Ah, okay. So it's like which one is fixed and which one is the random variable. Mm -hmm. So in Bayesian statistics, our data is fixed. And our model is the random variable. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's the, I guess, the opposite. Um, but in terms of implementation details, you both of those methods, when you actually implement a model, need a likelihood. Mm -hmm. Where a likelihood is what's the probability of your data given your model parameters. Mm -hmm. The difference is that when you add in your prior, so what's the probability of our model parameters not caring about the data, what's our prior information or our prior knowledge on those parameters, well, that's how you can unite the two through something called Bayes' theorem. Mm -hmm. Now, the primary benefit, I would say, of Bayesian statistics is that if you actually write out Bayes' theorem in full, so it's the likelihood times the prior that we just talked about, but then it's divided by an integral over the data, and that's called the evidence. Now, unlike frequent statistics, Bayesian statistics has a very nice way of comparing different models to each other. You compute the evidence for each model and you compare those. You have an evidence ratio and you can use that ratio to say, hey, given these two models, this one is preferred by this much. Mm -hmm. Now, there are analogous ways of doing this in frequent statistics. You can, uh, let's say you have a traditional chi-squared approach, uh, chi-squared approach being where you simply have my my data is this vector, my predictions are this other vector, I take the difference between them, so how close am I, and then you divide that by your error. Mm -hmm. That's a chi-squared approach. And there are ways of approximating model selection, uh, AIC, BIC, DIC, a whole bunch of 
the IC being information criterion, different ways of comparing models, but they're not as good. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're simply not as statistically robust as something like the Bayesian evidence. Uh, the reason, of course, that Bayesian statistics is now getting big, whilst frequentist statistics are sort of seen as, you know, the older traditional way of doing things, is simply computational power. Mm. Computing the evidence is an absolute nightmare. And only with modern computers do we have any chance of doing that. So before we weren't able to compute the evidence, now we are. Yeah. So before you sort of were restricted to, let's say, a one-dimensional or a two-dimensional problem, it's essentially an integral over every parameter. So if you had something like, you know, so my last supernova cosmology model had a thousand parameters, it's very numerically difficult to compute the integral in a thousand-dimensional space. Mm-hmm. Right. It requires sophisticated numerical techniques, uh, essentially something called nested sampling, which we probably don't have time to get into. Uh, but we can do that these days. We couldn't in the past. Okay, gotcha. But there has to be, there has to be a view in the scientific community or uh, data science community that Bayesian statistics is more correct or is more powerful than frequency statistics not like the computational power yeah great it's there now so we can do bayesian statistics but people wouldn't be running or moving towards it if they didn't see that it's more valuable than frequentist so oh for sure it it's definitely it's yeah so it's more valuable because it is both more correct and more robust Mm -hmm. So as we were talking about before with, for example, the evidence ratio, so your Bayesian evidence, that's a much better way to try and discriminate between multiple models than the approximations that we would use with frequentist statistics. And the other thing is that Bayesian statistics allows us to better make use of our actual knowledge. So when you include things like the priors, you inform your final answer based not just upon your data, but what you already knew before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so conceptually, imagine if you had two studies you do the first study, you go into that study knowing nothing. Yep. You finish the study and you have some, it wasn't like that good a study, very like a the first pass, very rough, very interim, but it gives you some information on your model parameters. And you can use that information as the prior in the second study. And that way you can more rigorously combine your knowledge um, of your model parameters going forward. The way that you would try and do that under frequentist statistics is you would have two separate studies. They would give you model constraints. So X is this number plus or minus this number. Mm-hmm. You would then say, okay, we're going to assume that these errors are both Gaussian and we're going to combine them together. So Gaussian error propagation, mm-hmm. which is fine if things are Gaussian. Mm-hmm. But in the real world, you know, Lots of things are not Gaussian. Lots of things are not even close. So we really need to try, especially once you get into precise statistics. So when you're constraining, uh, you know, model parameters down to sub percent levels, you need to make sure that you've done it correctly. Otherwise, you end up having systematic biases in your model constraints. Amazing. (laughs) Amazing. That's uh, I think that's more than enough. To process right now thank you for (laughs) for the overview so in terms of business what would you recommend for people is it worth looking into bayesian statistics now or 
Star of Frequences, Frequences, Statistics. Oh, God, no. <laughs> Uh, there's there's no point starting with frequentists now mm-hmm. because it it's sort of like you know do you want to learn to paint should you first learn just with black and white or with color color and it, it's it's like yeah you just start with color you you would learn composition and tonality and shading all in one go instead of trying to piece it together and you get a much more cohesive view uh, if you do just start with everything because you go into it with the right concepts but it sounds so, if you so do one hard. That means, Sam, it sounds so hard. Bayesian statistics, you know, like it, to you know, frequentist statistics, you just go and you're like p values. Okay, I can I can handle that. But Bayesian, you know, there's the prior, there's the evidence, then there's um, the reverse relationship between the probability of parameters and the data, things like that. It just sounds really complex. Like, is there a f- easy way to learn Bayesian statistics? Yeah, just do it. <laughs> so obviously there's there's a terminology overhead, but the concepts are all quite simple and the probability that goes in is actually not that complicated. It's something that you can do uh, just with the very basic probability identities. Uh, a lot of the time, the application of Bayesian statistics can get complicated, but that's not because anything Bayesian is complicated. It's because your likelihood is complicated. And that's something that is both in frequentist and Bayesian statistics. So once you start getting to the nitty gritty, they're just as complicated as each other. It's just, have you spent the extra few minutes at the start uh, trying to learn what these terms mean? And uh, I know that uh, we have, uh, so for new students in cosmology, uh, one of the uh, one of my colleagues I know has helped write a book that's called Bayesian Methods in Cosmology. And it starts with a whole bunch of astrophysical examples to show you exactly how you should formulate things. And once people do like one or two of those, it just becomes natural because Bayesian thinking is how we naturally think. There's another XKCD comic that says, uh, you know, here's a neutrino detector. Um, it will roll two dice, and if it gets two sixes, it lies to us, yeah. right? And then they keep this detector on, and then if, at some point the detector says, we've detected a neutrino burst, the sun must have gone supernova. And the frequentist would say, okay, well, uh, let's see, one in 36, oh, that's less than 0.05, so we've detected the sun going supernova, <laughs> which doesn't make sense to us conceptually, right? Yeah. But a Bayesian would say, well, I have a pretty good prior, so my prior knowledge that the sun hasn't gone supernova in billions of years, so why would it go supernova now? And so the Bayesian statistician would say, actually, really don't think it has. Wow, that's a ma- fantastic example of... Uh... Of prior, the, indeed. I was, I was when you were talking about prior, I was thinking, what example could we give? That's, that's beautiful, right? Like, frequentists would look at that. Okay, less than point five. That's it. Must be statistically significant. The sun has exploded. On the other hand, Bayesian is like, not only do they look at the uh, evidence now, they look at the prior knowledge. That's so cool. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. Very cool. And I think that puts it really into perspective. Um, okay. Well. Sam, really been really nice chatting to you. We've we've uh, almost uh, depleted our time for this podcast, even though there's so many more things I would love to ask you. Um, so, just quickly, um, what what's uh, what's your research coming up now? Like, how much more are you doing your PhD for? 
Well, hopefully I'll have wrapped up the PhD in the next six months, and then I'm looking to try and start working with DESI, the Dark Energy Spectroscopic Instrument. So they're going to survey millions upon millions of galaxies in the night sky to try and uh, map out the imprints from the early universe in the galaxy distributions. They'll do some absolutely amazing science so i'm waiting on all the government funding bodies to get back with you know either you've been accepted rejected or this is how many people you can hire and i'm going to try and jump in to whatever good position i can so that i can set myself up for the next few years doing uh, some good physics okay what's what's your dream position that you would love to get oh well, that would probably be million dollars a year, stay at home and do whatever I want. Uh, <laughs> failing that, um, I would really love just a stable. So the big issue in academia is that often you have like very short contracts, one, two or three years, and then you move yeah. country every couple of years, yeah. which is fine until let's say you want to get a pet or yeah. you have a partner or you want to buy a house, right? Then yeah. it gets in the way. Yeah. So a, a stable job somewhere, probably in Australia, because I happen to have friends and family, that split between doing good research and good scientific outreach. Because I do do a lot of public talking. I try and get out there, spread the good word of science to everyone. And if I can get paid to do that instead of just volunteering, that would be amazing as well. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, if anybody listening to this podcast is in the scientific community, especially in Australia, and you happen to be working in astrophysics, get in touch with Sam. <laughs> Sam. There'll be of, hundreds of them, I'm sure. <laughs> Sam, speaking of that, how, how, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, I would say uh, flick me an email. Um, that's obviously probably the best way. I do get a lot of emails, though, so if you want to get something less formal, I have like public profiles on the usual Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn uh, that you can contact me there. Um, I don't know when I'll get back to those, hopefully within a couple of days. Um, and obviously, I have my website up, cosmiccoding.com.au, that details some of the projects I've been in, some of the stuff I've been doing, and other various ways of getting in touch with me. So that's probably a good resource. If you have any questions space-related and you want them answered, uh, happy to help out. Fantastic. And we'll include all those links in the show notes if somebody wants to uh, get in touch. And I encourage everybody to get in touch. And uh, before I let you go, one final question. What's a book you can recommend to our listeners to help them on their journey into statistics? Oh, okay. Well, the book that I would have to recommend, I, I talked about a little bit before, Bayesian Methods in Cosmology. It's written, partially written by a friend of mine a very fantastic overview of Bayesian statistics and fun applications in how they can be used in space science. Obviously, I'm a bit biased. I like space. I like space science. Uh, even if you don't, it is a wonderful introduction to Bayesian methods. Gotcha. There we go. Bayesian methods in cosmology. Who's the author? Uh, oh, there's a whole bunch of them. Uh, we should probably put a link down there because every this is common in academic works. Every single chapter has a different author. Oh, wow. I like books like that. It gives you a lot of different perspectives on things. That's, yeah. That's fun. Okay, Sam, once again, thanks so much, my friend. I hope we catch up sometime soon. And once again, congrats on your epic course launch. We'll, we'll include the links to the, in the show notes if anybody's interested. And yeah, best of luck with your PhD. Sounds like exciting times. You're finishing it up. 
I hope so. Well, thanks for having me, mate. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for being on the Super Data Science podcast today. I'm super excited that you got to meet my friend, Sam, and I really hope you enjoyed all the insights that he shared with you today. Uh, probably the biggest takeaway for me from this episode, everything was really fun, really exciting. But uh, the thing that um, really stuck in my mind is that great example about <laughs> Bayesian inference, about the sun and how the, you know, the sun hasn't exploded yet. So we're using that prior knowledge in our statistics calculation, probability calculations, and that informs better our assessment of the current situation and our predictions for the future. And uh, look out for opportunities like that on, in business and business situations. And maybe we'll do a podcast later on. We'll definitely do a podcast later on on how to apply that better uh, in business cases. And that just shows the power of Bayesian inference and how it's different to uh, frequentist statistics. On that note, as always, you can get the show notes for this episode at uh, superdatascience.com slash 303. That's superdatascience.com slash 303. There you can find uh, the transcript for this episode, a URL for Sam's LinkedIn, and all the materials we mentioned on this episode, including a special coupon link to Sam's course on Udemy. So if you're part of Super Data Science, the membership, then you already have this course included in your membership, and you can access it on the Super Data Science website. But if you want to get access to this individual course by itself, and you're not part of the Super Data Science membership, you can find a special coupon in the show notes at superdatascience.com slash 303. And uh, yeah, if you enjoyed this episode, then share it with your friends. Don't just keep it to yourself. Maybe you have an astrophysicist who you know, or somebody interested in astrophysics, or somebody interested in statistics and Python and learning all these amazing things, or somebody who you think might resonate with Sam's personality. Very easy to share. Send them the link to the episode, superdatascience.com slash 303, and they can get on board with all these great insights. And on that note, thank you so much for being here today. I look forward to seeing you back here next time. And until then, Happy analyzing.